Welcome to the CSIS podcast, a look at the week's news and foreign policy through the eyes of the experts at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. I'm Colin Quinn. We've talked about the South China Sea at length on this show, and one of the most interesting factors has been the construction of artificial islands, most notably by China, on reefs and disputed areas of the sea. Recent months have seen these islands become more and more concrete, literally. China claims these reefs as islands, and as such, claims the 12-mile nautical zone around them exclusively. However, under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, if the reef was originally submerged, it can't just become an island overnight, no matter how much construction equipment is involved. To underline that point this week, the United States sent one of its warships, the USS Lassen, on patrol in the South China Sea within the 12-mile zone, in an act that Beijing has called a deliberate provocation. Well, is it? And how did we get here? To talk us through this issue is Gregory Poling, the new director of our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS. Well, I think you have to look at the long-term goal of these freedom of navigation operations and also take, you know, be aware of the current political atmosphere. So this wasn't about military deterrence. This wasn't about provocation. Certainly, there's a message to be sent, and that message is U.S. won't be kicked out of the region. It's also a message of reassurance. Uh, regional partners, Philippines, Japan, Australia, Vietnam, among others, are getting increasingly worried about Chinese island building. So all of that certainly probably played into the timing, maybe helped us get across the goal line, but that's not why it happened. Why it happened, I mean, it's a little more complicated, but it is primarily a legal issue, and it, these are legal operations. The U.S. does dozens of them every year all around the world to contest what uh, U.S. State Department and DOD lawyers determine are excessive or illegal maritime claims. This was just one of many, and not the only one that took place in China's waters this year, and not the only one that will take place in China's waters this year. Some might look at it as kind of a macho move by the United States to assert itself, but you're saying it's something that's more run-of-the-mill. Yeah, uh, well, run-of-the-mill for the U.S. Um, U.S. certainly has the most robust program like this, this, this freedom navigation program that's been going on since, I believe, the Carter administration. And like I said, it takes place in the waters of dozens of countries every year. And, and everyone from our closest allies, like uh, last year included Japan, the Philippines, to uh, more antagonistic countries. But it's not geared specifically toward China. China's not an unfair target here. Admittedly, given the spotlight on the South China Sea and on the Spratly Islands, more attention was paid to this FON operation, as they're called, than to probably all the others combined over the last 40 years. Uh, and, and the administration had to recognize that, which is why there was a months-long debate. But at the end of the day, this had to be done. The US, if the U.S. chooses not to do this in, in these extremely excessive Chinese claims, then it undermines the whole program. And, and that kind of brings us to the idea of how the Chinese can claim this to begin with. Um, we've obviously seen, and in your program is a big part of this, that the island building that was been happening on these reefs. So really, when it comes down to it, does China even have the right to say that you can't come within 12 miles of our island? Because legally speaking, it's not an island. How, how does that work? There is absolutely no way that China has that right. And nobody thinks that China has that right. You can read commentaries from Chinese academics and think tankers, though they're in the minority, who recognize that they don't have that right. This operation had nothing to do with whether or not the U.S. believes that China has a right to Subi Reef itself, which was the feature in question here. This was entirely based on whether or not, if it's China's, and again, the U.S. doesn't have a particular natural, uh, national interest in who gets this bit of coral, but if it is China's, do you suddenly get to declare a no-go zone for 12 nautical miles around it because you built a sandcastle out in the middle of the ocean? Absolutely not. 
but that seems to be the way it's going. That seems to be that, you know, it's not the only sandcastle that they've got. The way that it's going, that there's now multiple islands, multiple features on these islands, there's airstrips, there's potential uh, radar stations, no military hardware as yet, but certainly the potential to be there. Then the US, how many patrols will it take then to assert this kind of idea of freedom of navigation if there's going to be island after island building up like this? Well, the question for your navigation, I, I think there will be as many patrols as it takes. This is a fundamental U.S. concern, and it has been uh, at least since the, the creation of the current post-World War II system. Uh, the U.S. is not going to back down there. The U.S. does not accept that the U.S. Navy, Coast Guard, or merchant ships uh, are, are restricted from anywhere in the world in which the international law says they can be. In the South China Sea, the vast majority of it, are international waters as far as transit is concerned. Now, we can get into the arguments about Continental shelves and EEZs, uh, exclusive economic zones, but none of that has to do with the right of a military ship to go from point A to point B or to do information gathering or any of the other things that we do in these waters. I don't see any chance that Washington backs down or negotiates on that position. The bigger question of – or I guess the more long-term and, and more more uh, difficult to, to solve problem is that of occupation of the features. But China has not occupied any new features here. It's done uh, what many probably thought was an impossible engineering challenge and in, in, you know, uh, exponentially increasing the size of its holdings on these seven that it's had for 20-plus years uh, in the case of the most recent one. But that hasn't altered the legal question. Um, the U.S. still takes no position on who has these. China has still not moved to knock anybody else off a feature or tried to aggressively expand. Uh, there hasn't been any, any large-scale violence here since 1988, nothing new occupied since 1995. That is one problem that we need to kind of put in a box and worry about what the long-term management systems are. The question of rights and responsibilities in the oceans are an entirely different question. Now, you can't say that this isn't tense. What would you recommend in, in, in trying to bring people to the table, perhaps de-escalating, perhaps changing the way people are talking about it? Because obviously it's not a new issue. What has brought us to this point and what could be done to mitigate it? Yeah, one big thing is uh, the narrative. The narrative has to be carefully crafted, especially by the administration here because the U.S. doesn't have a whole lot of control over what regional states say and do. But this wasn't an act of deterrence. It wasn't an act of military escalation. And it's being framed that way by a lot of, frankly, lazy media coverage. Now, we, again, we can certainly talk about how this sent a message, maybe as a, an added benefit, was that it sent a message to China that the U.S. won't be knocked out. But that's not why it happened. That's not why the months of planning went in to make this happen. And it's not why it'll happen over and over again, probably at least once or twice a quarter for the foreseeable future. Uh, long term, the only way we get through this tense situation in the South China Sea, which has really been escalating for the last six years or so, has just picked up pace uh, since late 2013 when this island building kicked in, is if China decides, if Beijing rather, China's leaders decide that they're undermining their own larger interests by acting this way, by being seen as rogues in the international system, by thumbing their nose at treaties that they themselves helped negotiate and sign. Uh, that's simply not the way a responsible rising power, as China likes to frame itself, uh, acts. And it also ignores the fact that China, while an extremely important relationship for the U.S., is not its only Asian relationship. Uh, and there's very little, uh, I think, probability that Washington decides to throw its other Asian partners overboard in favor of, of some kind of G2 or new kind of great power relations with China that would recognize its uh, excessive, uh, if not extraordinary, claims in, in these waters. Yeah, I mean, it seems as well when we're talking about the 
allied part of it. You know, the TPP was a big was a big win for the U.S. It showed, you know, an economic uh, arm to this rebalance to Asia. Is this part of that too? Part of reassuring allies? Part of saying that look, we're in this region for the long term, uh, and as much as it's as much as it's a, a valid, you know, freedom of navigation patrol, it's a message not only to China but to its own allies. Yeah, I, well, in that the freedom of navigation operation and those that are going to follow on from it, because there certainly will be more, are part of a larger long-term U.S. goal of seeing a peaceful resolution in these waters. Then, yes, in that it is part of the larger U.S. rebalance to the Asia-Pacific, if by the rebalance you just kind of mean a greater attention paid. Um, there is a degree of, of reassurance of partners in this, but when you get right down to what the U.S. core national interests are, um, it's, it's about seeing what China is going to be, a case study of what a rising China will be and how it will act. And also uh, a real, I think, legitimate concern about the ripple effects for international law because if China's claims in the South China Sea stand, then the body of international law regarding the, the oceans that, that took us half century to create that you know 192 or so countries now have signed on to is as good as dead because why would any rational state restrict itself to territorial seas, exclusive economic zones, and continental shelves if China doesn't have to. Obviously, China had suffered a, a blow somewhat where the Philippines taking their case to The Hague and are now going to have their case heard. Are we going to see more of that happening? Is that now where the forum of, of debate will be taking place? Well, in a perfect world, that's, yeah, that's the only place it would take place, right? That's what the courts were there for. I'm not sure that we'll see immediate follow-ons. Uh, the Philippines did a remarkable job in crafting this case very narrowly. Uh, under the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, there is this arbitra uh, arbitration to which you can bring somebody with or without their permission, but there are a number of exemptions. Uh, you can't bring arbitration on issues of delimitation. So the court can't say where one easy boundary or kind of shelf boundary ends and the other begins. You can't bring it uh, in cases of military exercises or activity. So there's, there's a number of exemptions that China claims, and the Philippines made a very narrowly defined case that wiggled between those. Uh, if, it, if it turns out when we get to the next set, of, uh, the next section of the case, which will be the merits arguments and, and eventually the judgment, that the Philippines was right, maybe we'll see those like the Vietnamese bring their own cases. But, but they're, they're also going to be very narrowly defined. Um, unfortunately, given that UNCLOS, like all international treaties, was uh, a difficult consensus document, there's a ton of ambiguity. There's a ton of carve-outs. Uh, there's no international police force that's going to go kick down Beijing's door and make them comply anyway. So I do think this is a win for the Philippines. But it, if anything, it's, it's a crack. And what it really does is it brings a certain reputational damage for China. Um, but reputational damage only goes so far. Back, back to China and look toward the future. Is there something more that can be done here to avoid something that could be possibly seen as provocative? Is there steps that we could take, you know, like the in Cold War, we had the red phone between the US and Russia. Is there something like that that could be done, that is being done, that could improve this and, and stop anything that could be seen as, as problematic? I think there's a lot being done. Um, you saw as recently as, as President Xi Jinping's visit here to Washington, the signing of two military annexes, one on uh, precisely kind of the red phone, a defense-to-defense -defense hotline in case of crisis, the other on uh, an annex to a previous military agreement uh, that cover now covers how our aircraft behave if they run into each other. We already have the so-called Q's agreement that was signed last year uh, that covers that for naval vessels. So we're making this progress. And you've seen uh, statements out of, for instance, the chief of naval operations in the face of this fawn, that it's not going to affect the larger 
U.S.-China relationship, or at least Washington won't let it. Now, if Beijing chooses to to punish the U.S. by withdrawing from cooperation, that's one thing. But the U.S. has made it clear that it's perfectly willing to compartmentalize here. We have the South China Sea as a giant thorn in the side of the relationship, but it's only one part of a larger relationship that has kind of a global scope. So I think we'll continue to try to minimize, but we have to accept that there's going to be tensions. They're going to rise because thus far China's unwilling to tell the world what it's claiming or back down from um, bullying, for lack of a better word, against neighbors. And the U.S. has made perfectly clear that it will not accept these uh, restrictions on, on freedom of navigation or these excessive maritime claims. So action is going to be taken and it's going to upset China. And that was Greg Poling bringing us to the end of this week's show. For more, you can visit CSS.org and follow us on Twitter at CSIS. I'm Colin Quinn. Thanks for listening.